Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Racing Lives. My name is Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot, and in this podcast I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. My guest today is Ruth Buscombe. And I actually need to check how to say your last name properly because I'm very bad at it. Oh, it's Buscombe. It's weird. It's Buscombe. weird. There's only like eight of us in the world. So it's oh, it's not just English. It's English and odd. Ruth, my name is Aurélie Donzelot, which is impossible to pronounce. <laughs> so don't worry. Yeah, okay. I'll take it back. It's a really easy name. Why aren't you nailing it? Now tell me, Ruth, I've got to ask you the question that I start with every podcast, which is when and where did your racing life begin? Yeah, this is always the embarrassing question for me because I went from wanting to be a princess to wanting to work in Formula One around the age, somewhere between the ages around eight to nine. Both my parents are doctors, but my dad loved Formula One growing up. So we didn't have football on the on the TV. We had Formula One. So he was the one that got me interested in it. And then as soon as I realised you could do maths and like make cars go quick which was yeah about the age of eight or nine I was like that's what I want to do and I've never wanted to do anything else since so yeah that's amazing and I mean I'm going to jump all over but the question I really want to ask is did you know anybody in the industry when you decided that's where you wanted to be no, so I didn't know anybody at all in Formula One. I did like quite a lot of research as a small child um, with an overactive brain and looked at kind of where all the technical directors went to universities, like what did they study? Because people like Paddy Lowe and James Allison were kind of technical directors at the time when I was kind of starting secondary school. And so like worked out they all went to Cambridge. And so that's why I went to Cambridge. Um, so basically just as like find out what good people do and copy that. I actually hate asking the question, but because of the situation that you were facing, I feel like I I feel like I need to. We talk a lot about the importance of representation and being able to see someone that looks like you doing the job that you want to be doing to get the inspiration to actually want to be doing. You were staring at middle aged men. And yet that didn't stop you from knowing that that was where you wanted to go. 
No, and I, and I think you're completely right. I think representation makes it easier. I think when you're when you're younger, especially I grew up in the east end of London, which is the biggest multicultural melting pot ever, where there isn't really a dominant um, anything in terms of background or you know gender. Everything's just a big old melting pot. You're not really aware, well, of your own, like, let's say, privileges of being born white, and you're not aware of the, the kind of let's say disadvantage of being born a woman and, and it wasn't really until I was a lot older that let's say I really saw there was a difference and felt the need to have that and that was when I was a much kind of yeah, adult and at university where you really start to notice that yeah there is a difference. <laughs> but by then you were already well on the path so it's perfect. You clearly grew up with motorsport were you always a fan or was it something that you felt that your dad was enjoying and you were you know you're just in the room whilst it was being on there? I think as soon as I got to understand what was going on, I really enjoyed it. I've always loved maths. Um, I've always loved science. So for me, kind of the combination of, let's say, competition and maths, I mean, other than the countdown job, like that it's the coolest you're going to get maths to be. Um, and I actually think it's cooler than the countdown job. Now I've got it. Um, but yeah, that that was it was just a kind of let's say as soon as I really understood it I fell in love with it and I couldn't imagine doing any other job. As someone who's not gifted with maths I actually loved maths growing up. I did it up to AS level and unfortunately I reached a wall at that point and I realised that my capabilities were just that was it which broke my heart because I genuinely absolutely loved it and to be chatting to somebody who is so genuinely my friend and is so genuinely a maths person I just want to ask you like what is it like is it your language yeah yeah definitely I mean I, I think I'm kind of from nature and nurture blessed that I come from a very scientific family so like both my parents are doctors and they both come from kind of let's say science backgrounds you know my brother who became an art student was like how did that happen where did those genes come from um so <laughs> I think sciences was more natural in our family yeah. growing up I was called Hermione Granger at school so I was always quite academic math and science um, have always been the thing that I've enjoyed the most and I've I've been uh, been the best at um kind of growing up and yeah I mean you say mentioning hitting a wall in math I think that was my kind of artistic talent for me was probably similar (laughs) I love it it takes you know we need all the big brains in in our industry anyway so I love that you have the best mass brain and you clearly do I mean are you the youngest head of strategy in the entire paddock um I don't know I think at the moment maybe yes but not sure. I mean, not that it matters. It's just I'm not going to go asking everyone's age. You know, no, but it's a, it's a credit to your success that you've you know you've gone there that quickly and uh, and and you're holding it. You know, four and a half years, the team is a force to be reckoned with. We all take to the track, and we never, you know, you, you you can't be discounted. Your strategy is always something that has to be watched out for for every single other Formula One team. So, I mean, I'm paying huge compliments now, but it's true. Thank you. <laughs> Do you feel like? I think you've answered this already, but do you feel like motorsport chose you or did you firmly choose motorsport? Did you have to fight for it? I think both. I think I set out quite naive um, in terms of really, as, as we mentioned before, like understanding that there was a little bit of a barrier, let's say, with some individuals, not with everybody at all, but with some individuals that because you don't look right, because you don't come from the right, um, you know, background, maybe, you know, you've got, not got the right accent, uh, you don't you don't have a heritage in motorsport that 
that people look at you differently and that you have to kind of keep proving it again. You know, I, I thought when I got to Cambridge and I first started applying for jobs and some feedback that was, let's say, a little bit negative and that, you know, you think, oh, OK, well, if I graduate with a first class degree, in Cambridge, then I'll have the same degree as James Allison and as Paddy Lowe, and then everyone will accept me. And you know, you, you turn up with with the same piece of paper, and people look at you completely differently. And I think that was the moment for me where I realised I was like, oh, there isn't a finish line. You have to keep doing it over and over again. And there's some people that will look at you the same, or they won't have. They'll be blind to you know, let's say your, your gender, your color, your background. You know whether your dad was in the sport, whether your mum was in the sport. But there's going to be other people that you're going to have to almost start from scratch. And then there's this prove it again syndrome that you do find that you have to keep with certain people. You have to keep proving yourself in a way that that would have been given to somebody from maybe a different background. But also at the same time, you know, I think it's it's impossible to talk about, you know, gender without also saying that, you know, we are also pretty lucky and I was born in the United Kingdom, which is it's a lot easier to get into motorsport than in other countries. Um, you know, I've got friends that have come from other backgrounds. My boss was born in like Catalonia, uh, which at the time didn't have pretty much any motorsport background. So it was a lot harder for him to find a route in, even though he's, you know, a man. Um, and there's obviously other, you know, genders and, you know, sexuality. So there's, there's a lot of other, let's say, barriers out there. And it would be unfair of me to kind of say, that you know I had it completely tough because there's a lot of other privilege that I kind of got a little bit of a head start with as well absolutely I think that's something that people forget it's so easy to actually focus on your gender because you're doing a role that so traditionally has been blokes and actually everyone's got their own story everyone has got barriers and Formula One is so beautifully international we're lucky to have so many different people from different backgrounds in different places we're not perfect nowhere near we know that you know we're working to try and make it even more diverse but you can't discount the fact that everyone that's sitting on that pit wall which is where you sit also has a story and also had to fight to get to that seat yeah definitely do you find that people underestimate you I like to be the underdog. So probably, yes, because then I think this is like, you know, you look at the way in sports, some people like to go in and and perform better when they're the number one or they're the confident going in. For me, I like to, even if it's just psycho, psychologically, I like to feel like the underdog going in. Maybe it's probably just British. It's probably just 30 years of being beaten at football and just having that hope. <laughs> so, like, you know, I'd like to compare myself to, you know, some great sportsman, but it's probably just having my dreams crushed every four years. That's a gorgeous way of describing Britishness, by the way. As a, as a long-term observer, having lived in England for many, many well, God, it's several decades now. I think that's a wonderful way of actually describing what the British spirit is. <laughs> We've not actually spoken about the role that you play within the team. And I'm about to ask you what the biggest misconception about it is. And I feel like that would not be doing it good service because actually to the many people that listen, there's not that many strategists that's going to be listening, that's going to know exactly what you do. So it might be fair perhaps to, if you don't mind describing what you actually do within the Formula One team. My role as the head of race strategy is basically, in one sentence, to 
facilitate the best possible decision making of the decisions that we make throughout a race weekend. So that covers everything from um, some years we're selecting tyres, so we pick which tyres we want to bring to an event. Then in terms of the practice sessions, what kind of data do we need to collect, both in terms of our performance, our competitors' performance, how the tyres are, are behaving. Then it's about making decisions based on how we want to qualify. Sometimes we have to decide what tyres we want to keep um, for the qualifying and for the race session. And then in the race day itself, it's what race strategy you want to do. So if you're out of the top 10, you have to pick your start tyre. If you're in the top 10, you start on the tyre that you qualified on. And then for the race, it's about making the decisions throughout the race that give you the best uh, possible outcome for whatever your objective is. So um, most of the time that is trying to get points. Most of the time you're trying to maximise your own performance. Sometimes it might be creating a points difference. Sometimes it might be being defensive. Sometimes it might be being aggressive, depending on where you are uh, in your championship and what you want to achieve. And then all of the work that goes behind in terms of those decisions is the other like 98% of it. And that's um, that's done uh, as a big group of strategists that are all working together, looking at a whole load of data, basically trying to, to make those decisions as well, as well as we can do throughout the race weekend with the conditions we've got, with the car we've got and with the with the race that unfolds. I was going to say you touched on it uh, anyway, but it, you're the representative of strategy, but it's a huge group endeavour, isn't it? Um, and you're you're getting data from every single aspect of the team to then be able to make those decisions. Definitely. I mean, everything, everything in Formula One is a is a we, not a me. Um, and, and that's the thing that you have to do as a strategist. You need all the information to make the best decisions. That could be information that the other strategists are feeding into you about what's going on, what they think we should be doing based on the information that they're looking. It could also be feedback from the driver, feedback from the race engineer, feedback from the tyre engineers, feedback on what the weather could be like, feedback on if you have any reliability concerns, feedback on if somebody else on the track has another reliability concern um, in terms of observation. So you'll make a better decision the more information you have and, and the more you're able to follow the whole kind of world of Formula One rather than just being on your own, looking at your own stuff, because you'll always get outgunned by a, by a team. <laughs> I mean, the work that you've described, effectively, it's it's actually months in advance, isn't it? I mean, we the tyres are declared way before we even go anywhere near the racetrack that we're going to be racing at, which all then boils down to that afternoon more often. It could be an evening when you're sat on the pit wall having to make some very specific decisions at very specific moments. And that's perhaps the part that's so visible to everybody else. Obviously, everyone knows that during the race. There is somebody such as yourselves with every every single team that's having to adjust the strategy or come up with a whole new one, depending on what's going on. I actually wanted to ask you about stress later on, but it comes down to this is such a visible aspect where I suspect stress might be felt. I wanted to just ask you, you know, is your job stressful and how do you deal with stress in those moments or, or any other moment that may not be visible? I think it depends on what you define stress as to yourself and, and what you allow to, to stress you out. For me, and I think for most strategists, you have to take a step back and judge your decisions um, based on the decision making, not the outcome. And that's the biggest single thing about strategy is that because it's all probability, um, you need to look back and say, if I did the thing in hindsight that was a 90% chance of turning out right and the 10% came up, 
you have to let it go. And the other way around, if you got lucky and you actually made the wrong decision with all the information in hindsight, but then something happened and you bet on the 10% and the 90K mark, you need to be critical. And you need to look at yourself and say, actually, you know, when people are like, you know, patting you on the back, you have to turn around and say, I actually did a bad job, guys. Like, we got a good result today. But if we behave like that across the season, it's not going to work out for us. So you have to be detached from the emotions in terms of the actual stress of the occasion. Certainly on the pit wall itself, you have to mourn your mistakes after. Uh, so it's, you know, when you're when you're in that sporting arena, there's no time to get annoyed or to get upset at yourself or a situation or a safety car coming out or you making a mistake or a driver making a mistake because you'll just add to the mistake. You know, in every stressful situation you're in, in every performance situation you're in, there's always a possibility to make it worse. And the only real worst case scenario is not knowing what you need to do when something starts to go wrong, because you need to put a stop loss on that as soon as possible. You need to say, right, we made this mistake. Now, what's the next best thing? You can't go back and fix it. And you're probably going to spend the week analysing that decision to make sure you can't make it again. But you can't focus on the error in the moment because you'll just make another one. It's like, you know, you're turning around whilst you're running a race. You're just going to wander off basically course so that's for me mentally during the race itself you just detach yourself and the second you start to make yourself feel like you're aware of the occasion that you know when we had crowds at the beginning of the race you know if it's a really important race if it's a wet race for example you know there could be potentially a lot on the line I find that you know I use like focusing back onto what am I doing that's the way I get myself into the into the moment. I know most other strategists do a similar technique where you just you can't think about the million different possibilities of what could possibly go wrong because then you're just not focused on the, the task at hand. And after the fact, you're allowed to get annoyed, you're allowed to be happy, you're allowed to be, you're allowed to be, you know, both ways around. But yeah, I mean, we're the last ones that like look happy at the end of a good result because people are out there celebrating on the wall and you're thinking of the worst case scenario until the car has crossed the line and, you know, it's two hours later and the classification has come out. So like, that's why we always look really nervous up to the very end. So yeah. Nothing is ever as good or as bad as you think it is at the time is a really good way, I think, to live as a strategist. That's brilliant. That's a really good mindset. And what a testament to your powers of focus, because you're doing that job with 20 cars going round in front of you with pit stops and teams frantically, you know, professionally, but frantically running behind you. Um, and also something which isn't clear to someone that's watching the race, but I've been blessed with having the experience of working for a team. Your parameters are changing every 90 seconds. We often talk about drivers having to press buttons on the steering wheel, you know, several hundred times throughout one lap. You're having to analyze and, you know, make quick decisions, probably just as often as they have to press a button. And that's why teamwork is so important, because one person can't do everything. And so that's why 
having a great team around you um, and being part of a, you know, a bigger team of the whole team rather than just the strategy means that you'll do the best that you can achieve because, you know, no person is an island. And, and exactly as you say, the more of you that can work together cohesively, the more information that you can get together as a, as a unit, the better chance you have of making a good decision. Because, um, you know, one superhuman running, you know, maximum power is never going to be a team so I'm definitely not going to be a team people ask why team works the most important thing <laughs> so having explained a little bit about your job it's I mean it's so much more complex than that but we could be talking for hours if we did that what would you say is the biggest misconception about your job um that people think strategy is just the race itself and that's natural because it's obviously the the bit that everybody sees is you know the bit you go box 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 and then you know have a cup of tea or something because that's probably <laughs> the biggest misconception and that we make those decisions live whereas actually what we're doing is two percent it's like a tip of an iceberg is the way that I always describe it and it's 98 percent preparation and the the race itself if you've prepared correctly if you've done your homework if you've like across as a team you've practiced and you're ready for it you're actually reacting to a situation or a permutation of a situation that you've discussed before and so when something happens you're not trying to do maths live during the lap generally that goes very badly and actually you're following procedures that you've practiced over and over and over again and you're going through some part of a puzzle that you've created the night before or the weeks before where you say okay if this happens then I know that means it's going to make the race go that way which means I need to do this and that's what we're that's why we spend so much time working on the strategy is so that we know if a safety car comes out on a certain lap and then let's say the five cars in front of us decide they're going to box rather than going, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting them all to come in. Just what? What? That's not good. What you need to have done the night before is gone. OK, so if this happens and we think everybody should be staying out, you know, with our tire numbers. But if everybody comes in, what would we then do? You know, and, and you're discussing those things the night before or the days before or the weeks before so that when they actually happen even if it's not the exact scenario it, it, it's something so that you understand the, the sensitivity of your solution is the maths word for it but it's basically what does something do to your overall answer of what's the best thing for you to do it's almost like building muscle memory isn't it you've practiced so much before that when the situation does arise or situation as close as possible to that the decisions made already you just need to put it into place yeah exactly and and that's why you hear on the radio as a, as a fan at home or someone working in the team when you hear people talking about things like safety car windows or virtual safety car windows it's because the team has already decided what will they do if something happens right now and they only have three seconds to make a decision or they don't even have any time to make a decision you know sometimes a virtual safety car will only last one lap which means you might only get one chance to get your car in and then that's the reason why you'll open it so that your driver if they're towards the pit entrance they just jump straight in rather than lose the opportunity to do it so it really is a lot more preparation than necessarily reacting in the moment um, obviously you have to take into account the situations and you know you need to understand that you know if it starts raining you can't keep your plan for a dry race you have to adapt to that situation but it should be more adapting than reacting 
And it also works on the other side of the garage, of course, because by having agreed all those things, the pit stop team is ready and knows also that the driver could just come in at a moment's notice and, and they know that and they're ready. Yeah. So I think generally, yeah, the more you can prepare and the more that you know what a system looks like when you are in a hyper pressure situation and you practice those things, which is why, you know, you'll see every team on a Thursday, on a Friday, they practice both the normal pit stops, but then they'll also practice doing, you know, front nose changes or a steering wheel change so that the day that something atypical happens, everybody actually knows what's happening. And that means that everything gets, you know, down one notch on the panic level because the only real worst case scenario is not having a plan to get out of it. I've done strategy now for eight years, nine years. So there's something that you'll fail at and you'll feel really bad and you'll beat yourself up over it. But if you just walk away and try and forget about it, it will always come back and haunt you. And it's much better to to kind of pull at those strings of failure, to really understand why something went wrong how can you get better look at your competitors with respect and see where they've done things better than you and learn from it so that the next time around they've got much smaller chance of being able to get the one up on you and really focus on that and there's so many examples of things like you know there was the smallest hiccup that cost an eighth or a ninth place um back when i was working at ferrari in 2013 and then because of a change that you can make, can help contribute to a win two years later. And that's what that's where success is for me. It, it, it's not just having, you know, champagne moments. It's about being able to come out of a race and be really proud of the fact that you've had something where, you know, Torosso had the one up on you one year and then the next year you've beaten them by, you know, playing their own game better at them. That for me is the competitive spirit that I love about it. Although you're describing it within your role, it's actually a huge life lesson, isn't it? To embrace, effectively recognise a failure, call it for what it is, and then embrace it and learn from it. Mm. And I think you have to be respectful of the people that you are competing against, you know, obviously, whether you're a driver or whether you're a strategist. Ultimately, there's 10 groups of people out there. Uh, There's other sports, and I know quite a lot of us look at other sports, look at other sporting techniques, mental strategies, games. Poker is one that has a lot of of tactics to it. And rather than kind of downplay your competitors and say, oh, they're idiots, I'm the best, it's much better to, to kind of look and to be like, wow, that was clever. Why don't I take a you know a Red Bull China move from 2011 and combine it with a Mercedes move from Austria in 2019? And actually, even though they're two completely different races and two completely different teams, there could be a situation that for me in my team means that I can use the same trick combined and actually do something really good. So you have to be respectful and impressed of, of people that are doing a good job so that you can get better yourself. I love it. I absolutely love it. I um I apply the same thing to my role, which is much less crucial and important. But I love that we all have that competitive spirit and that we're all very aware of everyone that we are playing this game with, that we're all friends with, actually. But, you know, we're competing against very much. So but I find it a huge honour. The the better my opponent, let's say, which is true a truer word for you for you than it is for me, but the better my opponent, the better my game's gonna be. Oh, definitely. And I think that's that's one of the things that, you know, bring it back to equality. 
that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important in Formula One that we do increase a level of equality because you want to beat the best. You don't just want to be a small subset of people. You know, you want to be able to kind of look and say, ah, I beat everybody. Absolutely. The closer we can get to that, the better. We joked about long hours, but it does actually have a real impact. And one of the things that I like to find out so that I can learn myself, to be honest, is do you have a work-life balance? Have you achieved it? How do you manage it? And also, how do you manage your friends and family's expectations? To quote Toto Wolf, um, I don't think we have a work-life balance. I think you have to you have to find a way in which you are just happy and you exist, and that you you obviously set boundaries for the amount of like hours you work when you can. But I think I'm I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by you know everybody that I'm close to, whether it's family or or friends. None of them work in nine to five industries. So they're all pretty similar, Formula One or not. So I think they're kind of understanding of it. Or maybe just everybody else has left me because it's been a decade. (laughs) I'm only left with people that don't work nine to five jobs and they're all like doing weird hours as well. Well, we do all end up being friends with each other, don't we? Because we spend so much time together. I mean, you and I have an annual hanging out at a certain race where both our teams are at the same hotel. And it's literally like, huh, here we are again. Yeah. We touched upon success, but do you actually have a moment that you're most proud of, which may not actually be attached with a successful outcome? But is there something that stands out in your career so far that's genuinely like, that was a good one? I think it depends on... There's like a few moments. This is more like a highlight reel. So I think uh, for me, the first moment where I really felt like I could actually do it properly at the same level as like everybody else was uh, Malaysia 2015, uh, which is, you know, to this day, still my only race winning strategy. When um, between two different heads of strategy, I was left holding the the strategy baby at, at Ferrari for a couple of races. And that was that was a really good team effort in terms of a lot of people that weren't normally the decision makers pulling together and focusing on uh, the the detail that actually on that day added up to be the main event Um, and then I think there's other ones where as you grow and as you um, get older and you have like team efforts and you see the people that you that work for you excel that you actually you you gain a huge amount of pride to see someone that has come from not having any strategy background to to doing a really good strategy as well I think there's a there's an enormous amount of of happiness from that as well I would say I'm sure there's pride as well because everyone has to work so closely together to see that come to fruition it must be a very proud moment to keep it balanced is there a low point Oh, definitely. And did you come back from it? Have you, you know, did you find a way to climb back? And um, I think we touched on this before, but for me, the the worst moments are where you know you let the team down, where you in that twenty seconds made the wrong decision, or with your numbers it was pretty close in terms of percentages, and then the other thing turned up, and then in hindsight you go back and you reanalyze it, and actually probably you made the wrong decision because you didn't have the full picture, or you were missing a piece of information, um, or you underestimated your opponent, or you underestimated the track conditions. And for me, it's always been a process of working your way out of it so that it could never happen again so I think I tried to make it so that I'm happy to accept within myself any mistake once 
just don't make it just can't do it again so for me it's like looking at it and understanding it why did I miss that piece of information do I need to practice a skill do I need to create a new tool do I need to approach the whole thing separately do we need to split up the roles in a different way and then that for me is a big part of it and also turning around and saying you're sorry when you you've made a mistake I think accepting it because it's such a public role you you can never get away with a half truth uh, because everybody knows and everybody is expecting a sorry so you you have to say it and you have to to mean it when you when you say it to people so I think that that for me is the the process that I've used um, and, and try not to dwell on it as well there's a real habit that you need to get yourself out of that you don't make the opposite error the next week mm. so if you got undercut for example one race you then need to make sure you don't get you know you don't overreact and go the opposite way when actually it was the correct thing to do the next race so you have to really try to detach yourself emotionally from the way that you feel when you're analyzing a problem or an issue and try and really look at what went wrong and why it went wrong and and I find replaying races, listening back to how, what I've said, how I communicated, is there going through the tools is, yeah, work, work your way out of failure. It's a huge mental job, isn't it? And I mean, as in cerebral, because you've built experience, you've built instincts, which are valuable and which will play a positive part in what you have to do. But you also have to keep everything separate from your personal feelings your likelihood of projecting from one race to another you possibly reading the signs wrong because again one person rather than many many brains I mean at this stage I almost want to say you'd make an excellent therapist <laughs> I don't think so um, <laughs> no but it, but it is, a, it is a human there is a human element to it because you know I've always said it, it's, it's 50% maths and it's effectively 50% salesmanship because you come up with, as a team, what you think the best strategy is, but you need people to believe in it. You need the drivers to believe in it. You need your boss to believe in it. You need the team principal to believe in it. You need to have that level of cohesion and understanding that we're actually going to make this happen. Or if it's you're doing something that's more aggressive that everybody knows going in, we're doing this because we have to, because of the situation that we're in. And it might not work out, but that doesn't matter. We're not going in here to do a safe race. And then there's other times when, you know, it's the opposite, when you, you need to sell the, okay, so today we need to be defensive because all we need to do is make sure that we come ahead of this other team. And, you know, it would have been nice to get points, but the number one priority today is defense. So it, there is a lot of, of salesmanship in it, but also, if you're asking drivers to go out there and to do a strategy, if you're asking your team principal to believe in you, to sit there and to like let the team go and do this, it, it is important that you can sell it because if you can't, there's probably a reason why you can't. And that's probably because it's not good enough or you've missed something. So it, the whole thing does have to work as one kind of unit because if, if they don't believe in it, it's not going to happen. I mean, there's going to be situations where you're effectively asking team principals and drivers to go into battle knowing that they're going to be extremely uncomfortable for part of it and have to go through it for hopefully the outcome that you guys need to get 
yeah and I think that's why you know drivers are kind of a lot more silent team players than you can necessarily see from the outside um because you know you, you always see this with examples with with drivers um I've always been fortunate enough to to work with drivers that are team players and that they know that you know on that day for us maybe we've looked at all the numbers and we've decided the best thing to do is to split strategy so by that we mean run a different strategy on each car now the second you split strategy one is going to have a better one and the other one's going to have a worse one but you don't know which way around it's going to go sometimes it's really important to work out which is the best one and it doesn't really matter if you know if you get it there's a small chance of getting it wrong with both cars it doesn't matter because the chance is so small other times especially in races where there's a high chance of safety cars or you've got a big points volatility between you and your direct competitors it's more important to cover a higher number of scenarios than to maximize the absolute top chance of getting a good score because the bad side of it is so bad it's not worth it and in that scenario you absolutely need the team players you need you need drivers that are willing and, and happy to say yep yeah, okay i qualified behind my teammate today so that means i get to do this strategy and I think um, as long as you're transparent about why you're doing something, drivers are normal people and they're, they're understanding and you, as long as you don't lie to people, generally, and you explain why you're doing something, and if it's a sensible reasoning, they'll go, okay. What do you love the most about motorsport? The, the feeling when it goes well, when you know that you've made a difference that you've played your part as the team and that like on that day you you made everyone in your team proud you've made your family proud you know you made your drivers proud like I think that that feeling you know for the 10 minutes before you have to go and do another job is is kind of addictive yeah definitely it's the ultimate approval isn't it and it's it's there in black and white you can prove it what, what do you dislike the most about it? The opposite. When you screw up, <laughs> you ruined everything, and you know you like you can see everybody's hard work, and your mistake has been the thing that's unravelled here. And you know you, you've got to try and be objective, be humble, accept the flack from the people that you've. They're all kind of looking at you like they wish they could melt you with their eyeballs and don't ever, ever, ever Google yourself. Oh, that would actually, that's one thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, I wanted to ask you about social media anyway, but most specifically because you're so visible, you know, you are a member of the team that is identifiable. Everyone knows what you do. Is that difficult? No, because I just don't ever look at anything. I find that with the structure of a race weekend, I get so much done. It teaches you to get an awful lot done. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely prefer prefer that part of it. And I think also in my job, especially if you've had a bad race, it means that you are looking forward to having a potentially an opportunity to have a good race. If you've had a good race, you're like looking forward to having an opportunity to capitalize on that momentum and to to really put what you've what you've made as a positive, make it a habit rather than a one-off. So I think most people in Formula One and certainly everybody that works within track engineering is addicted to the to the competitiveness and, and, and the season itself. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Moving on to probably one of the reasons why I decided to do this podcast. 
and I'm sure you do this. Actually, in fact, I'm I'm certain that you do this because you you have a role as Dare to Be Different ambassador. An awful lot of people get in touch via any means possible, asking what it's like to work in motorsport, asking about personal path for careers and how can they do the same? How can they get there? So one of the things I wanted to speak to you about is your role as Dare to Be Different ambassador. If you could speak a little bit about what you do and what it's all about, I think that would really help the people listening. So Dare to Be Different has now actually merged with the FIA. It's part of the FIA Girls on Track initiative. Um, and that's not just in terms of drivers. It covers everything in terms of roles moving into motorsport. And there's, there's several parts of it. One is visibility, as you say, in terms of representation, making sure that, that people know that it is an industry that wants them there, that isn't closed doors, which is a huge part of it. There's also uh, a community in terms of being able to ask those questions, as you say, and have them channeled to the correct person and also that the person that's answering you then is maybe someone that's gone through the same a similar experience to you so they're able to provide you with good advice whether that's how to become a mechanic how to become an engineer how to apply to an internship so I think that's that's the 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 primary role of what the organization is and, and what it's achieved over the last few years in terms of what people should do if they want to become an engineer there's maths is the is the is the main theme of the answer if you're still at school you need to be focusing on your math subjects if you have a chance to do triple science instead of double science at GCSE you want to pick triple science if you're deciding your A-levels you need to be focusing on doing maths and physics and getting good grades in maths and physics A-levels try to make sure at least three out of four or all four of your A-levels that you pick are STEM-based subjects so chemistry, physics, maths, further maths if you can do it. Um, and then in terms of uh, university, so I actually studied aerospace and aerothermal engineering, which was a blend between mechanics and aero. And then I've never actually done, I've never actually worked as an aero engineer. So you don't need to do the exact specific knowledge uh, for Formula One. Doing a course in engineering, especially if you go to a, a good university where it's taught right, it's not necessarily about the knowledge that you learn it's about the skills that you learn and you're learning how to learn and you're learning how to tackle a problem you're learning how to not be phased by a problem to be put outside of your comfort zone in terms of maths and problem solving and physics and giving you an armory of tools to either attack that yourself or work out how you can attack that problem and that is all engineering is is either um, arming you with uh, the necessary skills to fix a problem or to give you enough information that you know who you need to go and ask uh, whether that's a colleague or google or wolfram alpha or whatever kind of tool it is that's what you need to focus on in in, in university is really developing those skills because they are the ones that when you start to look at applying to courses and when you go to interviews for Formula One teams, that's what they're going to be looking for is how do you approach problem solving? How do you approach problem solving when you're a little bit uncomfortable, when you are um, at the limit of your knowledge base, at the limit of your skills base? How do you perform in that environment? And when it comes to applying, you need to apply to a lot of different opportunities because just like every single job in the world, you can have, be the best in the world and you won't get 100% of the roles that you apply to, but you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Well said. Is there an advice, any advice that you received yourself earlier in your career or actually recently that you, you carry that served you well? 
Oh, a lot. I think in terms of uh, perseverance, I think is the most critical thing for Formula One and that you need to remember that the brick rules that are there in life, they're there to keep the other people out, the people that don't want it enough and that aren't going to try enough. And you should treat challenges as a way to show how much you want something and that you're willing to put in the work rather than seeing it as a brick wall to stop you. It's to stop everyone else so that you can show how much you want it. I love it. It's motivation. It's very good. Obviously, from what I could see online, you studied at university and then you, again, this is from the outside, you got a role with one of the biggest Formula One teams straight away. Had you done some work experience? Had you gotten to know people by that stage what enabled you to make that jump because that's one thing that traditionally when I speak to other people we actually push the message of don't target Formula One straight away think about other series think about other avenues because you'll get experience and that will serve you well to then get to Formula One to all intent purposes on the outside you just went straight in so explain (laughs) that one please (laughs) well I mean it started age nine um so I uh one of the main reasons why I applied to the university that I did is because of the really strong Formula One links that the University of Cambridge has got. I'm obviously biased because, you know, I think it's the best one, but it's the best one. Um, Sheffield Hallam is amazing. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'll tell James Allison. Um, <laughs> so um, so the, the university itself has got quite strong links with Formula One. There's some, some big advances in Formula One that kind of came about through collaborations, um, even as long as like, you know, there's the J dampener, things like that. When I was going through my course, there's um, a wonderful chap named Tony Pernell, who used to be the team principal at um, Jaguar and then briefly at Red Bull. And then he worked as a consultant in liaison with the FAA. And so I applied to do my master's thesis with him. And so I did my master's thesis um, basically working with the FIA. So Charlie was the first person I met in Formula One um, on the DRS zones. Um, so this was 2010, 2011, when they were first introduced. Um, initially in qualifying, they were basically like freeze use. So you could use your DRS whenever you wanted to. But the thing that this meant was that the teams ended up biasing their setups and their design uh, to qualifying. And then in the race, because of the way that they'd built their wings and they'd set up their car, actually, uh, the DRS zones were effectively useless because everybody was being forced to bias their car so so much towards qualifying because it was allowed around the whole lap. So after this first year, they said, "Ah, okay, well, actually, we're going to make it the same in qualifying and in the race. And we need to decide it doesn't need to be just one zone. Maybe we can have two zones. How long do the zones need to be physically? Where can we put them? Um, And my job was to do the legwork in terms of a lot of the simulations for that as a neutral party, uh, working with the FAA to see where they should be placed. As a result of that, um, which was initially an aero project, I was able to use um, a Formula One team strategy software to basically simulate the race to see whether or not these changes we were making, these theoretical changes we were making to a car um, and top speeds and things like that with the DRS um, would make the racing any good. So are we going to get overtakes? And that was where I got my uh, strategy bug, basically. And that's where I decided I want to be a strategist rather than an aero engineer because I thought that was a lot more interesting. Um, And then as a result of that a project, um, basically it kind of gives you the whole white white coat principle where you could go and talk to Formula One teams and say, hello, I'm 
contact you on behalf of the, of the FAA. I'd like to have some data on this, please. Um, which is how I got to know people in various Formula One teams. Um, and that's that's the kind of the, the, the networking that meant that I got my my first job. So um, I was contacted by uh, an engineer named Giacomo Tortora, who's working at Ferrari at the time in simulation as a result of that. Um, and that's how that's how I got in. So it was networking, but a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more academic math space. See, the theme is always math than, uh, than, than maybe another route. Perfect. Truly, you amaze me. You have a genuine gift for explaining things for my brain to understand, which is not math based. So for that, I thank you. And I'm sure everyone that's listening is also going to be very thankful. Um, and please do keep appearing on podcasts and giving interviews whenever you can, because genuinely it's fascinating hearing you about your job. And I can tell you're so passionate about it. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for giving your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Leave a review if you can. Tell your friends. Post about it on social media. It all means so much. And it really helps new people find our little podcast. I read every message and every mention, as you know, and it means a huge deal. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is Pandia. P-A-N-D-E-A. And there's now a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly should you wish to. It takes an awful lot of coffee to make this show as you can imagine. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.